Father, thank you for the years you've given me to preach in this building and to share what I have learned from your word with those who are eager to hear it. Thank you for being faithful, Father, to train me and to teach me and to give me time and strength and diligence and opportunity to to learn, to go into your word regularly and to come out of it with something worth the time we spend here on Sundays. I thank you, Father, for men and women who've gathered with me to hear it. Thank you for your wisdom in all that we've learned through these years. Thank you, Father, that it was uh, that the word was being taught in this building long before I showed up. And we have the confidence, Father, that it will be taught long after you have moved me to somewhere else. And thank you, Lord, that the men and women who are here have been blessed with that and will continue to be blessed with that, with teaching. Because, Father, we see in the lives of those who've been in this building with us what that teaching can do. We've seen how families have grown up in the knowledge of you through the word and how that's influenced their hearts, their lives. We've seen individuals, Father, who have risen above difficulties and trials in their life because of the encouragement and the instruction you've given in your word. Uh, We've seen how marriages have been strengthened and how individuals have been uh, brought to life in you, Father, first and foremost, to come to know you through your word. And... uh, Just so many stories, Father, I could share through the years I've been here. Father, you know them all, and you know more than I do, for sure, about all that you've done through your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Ezekiel. Thank you for the difficulty of this book, Father. It's challenged me in my preaching and in how I approach my study, and I appreciate, Father, the the growth that I have received from this. And I, I pray, Father, it's been equally edifying for those who've heard it, and that they are growing in their appreciation for what can be seen in the depths of your word. And that they have taken what they've learned, Father, and they've used it as you've intended to to counsel their hearts so that they would be and think and act and speak like you and not like they may, may have once done, as we all did. And Father, I pray as well for the search, for this opportunity to find the next man you would install here, who would teach as all men here have done, and would continue the legacy, Father, of praising you through your word and raising up men and women who care for you in your word and want to live according to it and to reach the world by it. We look forward to that day, Father, that you will bring the next man. May that man, Father, have a heart after you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we temporarily are going to wrap up our Ezekiel study by looking at chapter 15. And as I get to this point, knowing not only am I suspending our study in Ezekiel, but of course my studies here through books of the Bible coming to an end today, I thought it was interesting to go back and do a little reflection on some statistics of my time here. My wife and I did a little math in our drive today. My first sermon here was November 18th, 2007. Somewhere in there is my 10th anniversary. You can call it November 18th if you want. But in any event, that's a lot of time. Uh, I have taught 503 sermons from the pulpit here. 503. And I'm talking Bible-based sermons. 503 sermons. That represents 301 hours of teaching, of which Dave Neely slept through 297 (laughs) Here's another number for you, 74,000. That's the number of miles. 74,000 miles. That represents 1,500 hours my wife and I have spent in the car together. 1,500 glorious hours. Reinvested in your marriage. Actually, I would not trade one of those hours. You know, that's 1,500 hours I get to spend with my wife that I probably would not have otherwise spent with her. 
You know, all good things must come to an end. Twenty-four thousand. That's the number of donuts I have hand-delivered, of which the Erdners have eaten twenty-three thousand six hundred and fourteen. That's a lot of numbers. But you know what? I can't count—not yet, anyway—are the number of lives that have been touched by what they've heard taught through the Word of God as a result of my opportunity to come into this room every week. And I don't just mean in the lives of this room, of course. I'm talking about thousands or maybe millions of people worldwide who have benefited and have yet to benefit as this legacy continues on through the ministry that I have. This this opportunity to hear from people who say, uh, you won't know how much that meant to me, or you can't know how much my life has changed as I've studied this, or what it's done. I had a letter just this week from a gentleman who ministers on the mission field in Russia, and it was a long letter, I won't go into it, but he basically had just finished the, the Gospel of John as an example of the kind of thing we hear. And he said it had completely reoriented his ministry philosophy and approach to evangelism and had you know, turned his world upside down in a healthy way, and he was thinking so differently about how he did his ministry. And that's just one example from one guy. And I'm saying that to just emphasize that don't ever look at what God does in a small room with what seems to be a small crowd, you know, seems to be to us. Don't underestimate what God can do through you guys because of faithfulness. Ten years of what we just described, right, that's faithfulness. That's getting up every Sunday, me and you, to do the same thing we did the Sunday before. And never mind all the good things we do in between, I know. But just that one example, that's ten years of just doing what God's called you to do because He called you to do it. And leaving the results in his hands. And to do the right things when you do it, right? To teach in the word of God, to look at what he's written and do it in an honest way. And good things happen when you do that. And the numbers sort of pile up as they do in our lives. You know, all the things we can count. And they just pile up without us even noticing until you stand back at a point in time and you realize, look what God has done. And look what we can be a part of with him. In the Old Testament, there was a tradition of standing up, standing stones, they would call them. They might even look a little bit like a tombstone to us today, but that's not the suggestion of it at all. These were markers of testimony. These were the ways you would mark something God did in your life. You see this in Genesis quite often with Jacob or Isaac, standing up things at moments in time when they wanted to mark something important God has done. And we don't do that today. We don't stand stones up, not in that way anyway. But I think of these numbers as my standing stone for 10 years at Oak Hill Bible Church. Not just the donuts, you know, but the lives that are changed, the people who've been influenced. I want you guys to remember that, not just as a memory of what I did with you, but in general, what God does here. Because I bet if we went back to the beginning with Tommy Ice, 30 plus years ago, right, what would these numbers sound like if you added it all up, right? It's something God's at work doing here. And I know he's got bigger buildings out there and he's got bigger crowds and that's fine. I mean, he does what he does wherever he does it. But don't overlook what he's doing here. And as you guys are looking at the transition that that we've all talked about quite a bit already, just keep in mind that that transition is from one phase to the next phase of a story that is very big in in the scheme of what God is doing for his kingdom. And I appreciate all the support we had in that time with you. And I look forward to what you guys are going to do next. Well, this is not a going away. I don't want to make it sound like it is, but just because this is my last sermon out of a book of the Bible that we've been working in, I think it was an appropriate stopping point to just reflect a little bit and think back.
All right, with that said, it is now time to get to chapter 15 of Ezekiel. And we will be breaking, as you know, after this. This break is, is necessary, of course, because of my transition out of the pulpit into where I'm going. One day I do hope to start this up again, if anyone's interested. And so stay tuned, looking online. You can see when we get into Ezekiel again at some point in the future, and you can pick up with me there in chapter 16. But today we have a brief chapter to complete. As you glance down your Bible, I hope you're already looking at chapter 15 in front of you. If you look down that page, you'll notice how short this chapter is. It's only eight verses. That's all we have to do today. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I wonder how Steve will fill an entire Sunday sermon with just eight verses. Well, you are a visitor, and I want to welcome you here to Oak Hill Bible Church. (laughs) But the regulars know that this is no challenge for me. Chapter 15 brings us to the fifth of those eight excuses that Israel has relied upon to tell themselves they have no reason to pay any attention to Ezekiel's warnings. We've been studying these excuses as we've moved through the chapters of 12 through roughly 19. And we've been looking at these excuses each time. We've been looking at God's response to each of these excuses. And as we hit each one, we've been considering whether or not you and I are prone to using the very same excuses when we don't want to do something that God wants us to do in our own life. Now, the fifth excuse runs actually two chapters. It's not just chapter 15. It's actually chapter 15 and chapter 16. We'll see the excuse today in chapter 15. But the Lord uses the two chapters to give his response. Now, normally I would have preferred if we could have done these two in quick succession so we could put it together and obviously see his full response. But as short as chapter 15 is, glance forward to chapter 16 and you'll notice chapter 16 is exceedingly long in fact chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in ezekiel and chapter 16 is the longest chapter in ezekiel so it's simply not possible for me to do both in the time we have so meanwhile chapter 15 it lies ahead of us it offers us quite a bit to consider on its own so we're going to take our time with it this morning since it's only eight verses chapter 15 is a parable an Old Testament parable, and like all parables, it's teaching a profound spiritual truth using a simple everyday metaphor. And so first you've got to understand the metaphor, and then secondly you have to understand the spiritual truth that's represented by that metaphor. So in the process today we're going to do that, and we're going to discover the excuse that Israel is offering, and we're going to see God's response to it, at least the first part. So given its short length, let's just read it all together at once. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? But behold, while it is intact... It is not made into anything. Well, how much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it be still made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus, I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. 
So the Lord speaks to Ezekiel once again, and he has a word for those in Israel who are making excuses for why they ignore the counsel of the prophet, and he begins with the question in the form of a parable. He asks, how is the wood of a vine better than the wood of any tree branch in the forest? Now the vine that he's mentioning here is a grape vine, and grape vines grew throughout Israel. Grapes and, and the wine that they made were an important part of the Jewish diet and Jewish culture. Every Jew would have understood the comparison. They all would have been very familiar with grapevines. And the branches in this parable refer to the trees in the forest, the limbs of those trees, of tall, old-growth trees that you find typically in the ancient forests of Israel. So what God is asking Ezekiel, and of course Israel as well, is I want you to compare the worth of the wood that you get out of a grapevine to the wood that you find in these old growth trees in the forest. And that's a very easy question for anyone to answer, particularly for any Jew who lived in that day. In fact, even a child of Israel could have answered this question. Grapevines are good for only one thing, grapes. Because their wood is virtually worthless. If you've never seen a grapevine, you know, they're in the Texas Hill Country now. You can go look at one or look at it online, I guess. But if you really want to get an appreciation for the parable, you've got to see the wood and put it, your hands on it and touch it. Because grapevine wood is too soft, it's too weak, it's too gnarled. It doesn't grow in nice straight you know, ways like typical trees do. And so you can't use it for anything. The wood is useless. And so the Lord goes on to ask, well, could you even make a peg Out of the wood? And what he means is, could you even take a small part of the vine and make a wood peg that's so long, you know, something like three inches long, and put it in the wall so you could hang a vessel, a pot, from your kitchen wall? And he says, no, you can't, because the wood is literally that soft. It would not even hold up in the weight of a pot. No one bothered using grapevine wood for anything except fueling fires. And even then, it wasn't because you wanted that wood for the fire, it was just how to dispose of it. So the answer is grapevine wood is not superior to the wood of these forest trees. That's step one of the parable. Then in verse 4 he asks, Well, if that vine wood was thrown into the fire and it was partially consumed, both ends were burned off and the middle was charred, would that make it more useful or less useful? With both ends burned and only the center untouched, what do you think the answer is? Would someone be more inclined to use this now than they were before it got into the fire, given how useless it was to begin with? Would burning the ends of it serve any good purpose? Well, of course not. It only makes it more useless. Here again, it's an obvious answer. The Lord actually gives that answer. If the wood was good for nothing while it was intact, well, how much less useful is it now, he asks in verse 5. So it's another easy question, answerable even by a child. So what's the Lord saying? Well, it's obvious that he's leading Israel to a certain conclusion that should be obvious, and he's using a parable, a comparison, to bring them there. He's moving now in verse 6, as you see in the text, he moves now in verse 6 to making the application. And he makes the application this way. He compares the grapevine to the people of Israel who are still living in the city of Jerusalem at this stage. And he says he's bringing a fire against a forest... And he's asking the question, well, if the fire comes and burns even the tall, stately trees of this forest, wouldn't you expect it to surely burn that little, weak, useless grapevine that's in the middle of the forest, on the floor of the forest, right? Would the trees go and yet the grapevine somehow survive? Does that make sense? Now that comparison begins to tell us something about what he's talking about here. 
It's consistent with the Lord's use of grapevines as symbols in the Old Testament. The grapevine is one of three agricultural pictures that God uses commonly to describe Israel, along with figs and olives. Fig trees, olive trees, grapevines are all symbols of Israel in the Old Testament. You can find the grapevine picturing Israel in Genesis 42, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2. In the New Testament, it's used in a parable in Matthew 21. And there's other references I could have given as well. My point is, it's a common metaphor. It doesn't require guesswork on our part. So that part of the parable is relatively straightforward. Israel is this grapevine. The Lord says to Israel, to the grapevine, you're weak and you're useless as a nation. You're not mighty. You're not numerous, not compared to the Gentile nations that surround you. In fact, Israel has never been that. They've never been very powerful as a people, not compared to the great Gentile powers of the earth. God made Israel great at times in their history, but apart from God, the Jewish nation is weak, small, and inconsequential. It's like the grape wood that's growing in a forest surrounded by tall trees. So by logical extension, those other tall majestic trees that make up the forest in the parable must represent those stronger Gentile nations that surround Israel in their place on the earth. Many of those nations were far more numerous, far stronger than Israel. I mean, we're talking about Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Moab, Ammon, world powers by comparison. But Israel... Israel was this crooked, weak grapevine of a plant surrounded by those tall, stately trees. And the Lord says, now here's the application. The Lord says, I'm bringing a raging forest fire into your part of the world. And it's going to consume all of these. He's referring, of course, to the fall of nations that was taking place at the hands of great empires that the Lord was in the process of raising up to create this destruction. So we're talking about Assyria, who came in and took the northern kingdom. That's like a forest fire for that part of Israel. Babylon, as you know, is where we're focused now. Babylon's coming in for the southern kingdom. Later it's going to become Persia. Then it's going to become Greece. Then it's going to become Rome. It's like one raging fire after another. And every time one of these world powers is raised up by the Lord and comes into the area, nothing stands against them. I don't care how tall the tree is, metaphorically, how strong the nations are, they have to give way to this conquering power because God ordained it. These are all the mighty nations, the Gentile nations, that the prophet Daniel foretells to us that God would raise up to dominate not just the world, but particularly Israel. That Israel would be put in subjection to these Gentile powers. Those series of conquests began with Babylon, which is the nation we're now studying through Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel has been telling Israel warning them that Babylon is coming yet one more time. They've come twice already and taken the city twice. They're coming back. This is appointed by God. They're going to topple all opposition against them, including you too, Jerusalem, comparing it to a raging forest fire. And God's looking at Israel now as that grapevine, and he's saying, have you noticed the big trees are falling? And you're somehow convincing yourself that you are not going to be conquered that you, the grapevine, are stronger than those stately trees. Egypt, Assyria, Moab, Ammon, they had all fallen by this point. Even the strongest trees burned under the onslaught of those Gentile victors. So, how likely is it that the vine would survive the fire? Well, it's the same easy question he asked in the parable. Any child can answer it. There's no way. 
There's no way they have the power in and of themselves to withstand what's coming. Because if the Lord has ordained Babylon to this outcome, then that means that the Lord is on Babylon's side, at least with respect to this conflict. And if the only thing that ever made Israel strong in the first place was that they had God on their side, well, once he decides that the other side's going to win, what inherent strength do they have? They're weak. They're not going to survive. Now, God foretold these things to Israel long ago, not just through Ezekiel. Hundreds of years earlier, he told them this was going to happen through Isaiah. Isaiah, we've read this, I think, in times past, but I'll just reread this short section out of Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah telling them what to expect hundreds of years before any of this took place. Isaiah 13, verse 1, he says, Here's an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. God speaking here. Lift up the standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. A sound of Talmud on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation, to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. So Isaiah told Israel long ago, Babylon's my consecrated warriors. They are executing my anger against my own people. They will not be defeated. So what the parable in chapter 15 is reminding Israel is that the conquest of Babylon over Jerusalem is a foregone conclusion. The first two attacks that they've seen happen already on their city, that was just prelude. That was just the beginning. The city is eventually going to be taken to the point that everyone is gone. The wall's gone, the temple gone, everyone exiled. And so the Lord concludes in verses 7 and 8 of the parable. He says, I have set my face against them, meaning Israel, those in Jerusalem. They will come out of the fire. That is, they will not be destroyed. I'm not putting an end to them, not to the whole nation. But the fire will consume them, meaning it will bring them down. With the result being that they will know that I am the Lord. They will cease in their idolatry. Now, with that parable explained, as we see the big picture of it, we also come to an understanding of Israel's fifth excuse. It's implicit. It's implied. This is the Lord's response to it, so we can understand it by looking at what he said. The people of Israel were assuming that God would preserve them from the prophet's dire predictions because they were God's people. In other words, being the chosen Jewish nation, they expected God would always protect them. That other nations may be falling, yes. Other nations couldn't withstand Babylon, yes. But Jerusalem, no, Jerusalem will not fall. God will protect his people in the end. We're special. So the Jews remaining in Israel, in Jerusalem, were taking comfort in the assumption that they were special people and the rules then did not apply to them. To which the Lord now responds, yes, Israel is special, but not in the good sense of the word. They are disadvantaged compared to the other nations. He told them that long ago. Let me remind you of some things God said to Israel from the very beginning of his relationship with them as a nation. In Deuteronomy 4.37, he said, Because he, meaning the Lord, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. 
So he says in Deuteronomy 4, I brought you in by my power. I conquered mightier nations for your sake. Then a little later in Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, secondly, he says, not only was I the one with the power to bring you into the land, I didn't do it because you had any inherent worthiness. It wasn't because you deserved it. In fact, you had nothing going for you as far as humanity would concern itself. You were weak. You were not numerous. I, though, did it as a result of my faithfulness to my promises to your ancestors. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, the Lord told Israel, Now, when you finally do get into the land under these circumstances, don't get puffed up and imagine your history to be different than it really was. He says this in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 9. He says, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, that because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me into this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord has dispossessed them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when this pitiful little nation goes conquering throughout Canaan and dispossessing all these more powerful nations. At the end of it all, the Lord knew that they would be tempted to boast in their heart, look what we did, look how cool we are. And to say, as he quoted here, to say to themselves, well, the Lord was on our side because we're the good guys, and these people, these are all the bad guys. So naturally he was on our side because we were good. Moses, speaking in Deuteronomy 9, he says, well, you're half right. Yes, the Canaanites were bad guys. But Israel wasn't much better. You're just as bad in your own heart. The difference being, you have a relationship with God through a covenant, a promise he made earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that relationship is what's creating opportunity for God to do this work for you, not anything of yourselves. So the Jewish people were so certain that they were special that they had assumed God was prohibited from acting against them for their sin. They thought God's hands were literally tied by his promises to them, such that he could not act against them. They assumed that despite all the terrible atrocities they've been doing against him in their idolatry, nevertheless, their excuse for ignoring Ezekiel is, we have a special status based on our covenant relationship, he can't do anything against us. Now, they may not have said it in those terms, but that's what they were thinking. Once again, their excuse is based on a convenient selective memory. Have you noticed that about all of these? It's not as though the facts didn't line up against their excuse. They just conveniently ignored the facts. Because in the case of this particular excuse, first, they conveniently overlooked the fact that the Jews are already sitting in exile in Babylon. I mean, they're in exile. Remember in the parable, the Lord asked if the vine would be any better after you burn off both of the ends. Remember that detail? You know what that's about? That's the Lord referencing the first two attacks of Babylon on the city of Jerusalem. Each end of the stick, so to speak, represents one of those two attacks. We've had one attack come in, burn out part of the stick. Another attack come in, burn out the other part of the stick, leaving the middle charred, you know, weakened and damaged, as it were. And so now only the middle of it's left. And now the Lord's saying, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were weak and useless and of no good and of no value on your own before all of this started. 
Now you've been beaten down twice and you're thinking suddenly now you're going to resist the king of Babylon? Have you become stronger as a result of the first two attacks or weaker? It just defies all logic for them to be sitting there telling themselves that God's not going to do anything to harm this city when it's self-evidently already happening. They've already seen the result. So their own captivity in Babylon among the early exiles is proof that their relationship with the Lord through a covenant was not a guarantee of protection. Secondly, the covenant relationship itself is what's responsible for the Lord coming against the city in the way that he is. Because if you remember last week, we learned that the old covenant spelled out very specific disasters that would come against them if they failed to keep the covenant. And remember those four types of disasters are the very ones that Ezekiel is saying now are about to come. Pestilence, famine, wild beasts, sword. Remember the four? All right, those consequences come out of Leviticus 26. So in Leviticus, in the law itself, in the covenant, God spelled out the consequences for disobedience. Ironically, the covenant relationship they have with God is not tying God's hands. It's actually binding them to receive the very disasters that are now coming. It's the covenant that makes them necessary, not protecting them against it. And then finally... Israel is making the very mistake here that God warned them not to make in Deuteronomy 9. They thought they were inherently worthy of God's protection. They assumed they were going to be protected because they entered into a covenant, yet they failed to consider its terms. So it's be like us assuming we'll always be protected by our government merely because we're citizens of the government, whether we keep the law or not. Well, you and I both know that if you don't obey your country's laws, that country doesn't protect you against that. It takes you and puts you in jail because of that. And that's the situation they're in here. The Lord made a national covenant with Israel. And that covenant demanded their obedience to the law. And it said that if they kept the law, they would receive His protection. But if they disobeyed it, then they would receive His wrath, His discipline. That covenant relationship made Israel unique among nations, yes. But it did not make them inherently special. You see the distinction? It did not change who they were individually. It did not make them a different kind of people. It simply set them apart from the rest of the nations of the earth. So if the people of Israel lived according to the covenant's commandments, then they received protection. But if they disavowed God, if they engaged in idolatry, if they disobeyed the covenant, well, then they received His wrath. And in the end, the nation will always be preserved because God has made a covenant. But along the way, many in Israel are going to see the consequences of that nation's disobedience. And in Ezekiel's day, what that meant was God emptying the city, destroying the walls, knocking down the temple, purging idolatry from Israel. That's the consequence of their covenant relationship. So what he's doing is this. Here's another way to look at what we're watching happen here. It's God taking drastic steps to cut out a cancer that had the potential to destroy his people, and doing so in order to save the patient. If the Lord had taken less serious action here against his people, then this cancer of idolatry that was eating away at the hearts of the people, it eventually would have consumed them. Because, you know, if you go after cancer, but you leave a few cells alive in the body, eventually, usually, they'll come back to life, and next thing you know, you're battling it all over again. It's the way the disease works. Well, same here. Eventually, idolatry would have come back. Eventually, it would have rooted in the heart again, and then here we go again. So what the Lord did in this experience with Israel is he cut it all out, which is a painful process, leaves scars metaphorically. But in the long run, what it does is it saves the patient. 
And what the Lord's doing here is saving his nation so that when they finally come back into the land, as you've learned already, they never again bend their knee to an idol. You know, Christians, you and I, we can presume a little bit too much sometimes in our relationships with God too because of our covenant. I've seen this in others sometimes. I've certainly run into people who think like this within the body of Christ. That is a, They have this sense that being a Christian is something like a magical force field that protects us from every bad thing, that we have become inherently special and different from the average human being in life in such a way that we now have a different set of expectations for what life will bring. I don't know if you've ever run into somebody who thinks like this, that Christian who's telling themselves, nothing bad can befall me because I am a Christian, because of my covenant relationship with Christ. Sometimes people like this repeat phrases like, you know, God loves us and he has a plan for our lives. And they'll misquote scripture saying, oh, anything I ask in Jesus' name can be done. No weapon formed against me can, can harm me or, you know, I'll always prosper and so on. I mean, it's, it's sort of taking things out of context and applying them in the wrong way. Meaning that God has made promises to keep us from harm because we are in the covenant we are in. I call this Jingo Christianity. Jingo Christianity, it reduces our expectations of God to that of a cosmic genie, makes us all invincible superheroes. You know, life is always good and fine and smiley and happy because nothing bad ever happens to a Christian. It's kind of blind faith in a hyped and false view of what our covenant relationship with Christ says about our future. It's believing what the Jews believed in Ezekiel's day. It's saying God will never allow us to suffer defeat, just as God would never allow... Jerusalem to be defeated by Babylon. It's the same idea. But just like the Jewish people, that kind of thinking is self-evidently false. You don't have to work very hard to demonstrate that that's not true. Bad things do happen to Christians all the time. Christians get cancer, you know, to use the earlier analogy. Or Christians go bankrupt. Or Christians lose their jobs. Or Christians experience wars and earthquakes and fires and Christians are attacked and Christians are murdered and Christians are tortured and bad things happen to Christians. No Christian lives forever. Everybody gets something to kill them sooner or later somehow. You know, the best case might be falling asleep and never waking up, right? That's what we all hope for, perhaps. But the fact is, whatever your definition of bad is, it's going to happen to somebody who's Christian sooner or later. If we're promised to be like Christ in his eternal life, then ought we not to expect that we should experience what he did in his earthly life also? Why would we not follow in his steps throughout both experiences? In his earthly life, Christ was tempted by the enemy, so we will be too. Christ felt sorrow. He felt lost. There's moments in the Gospels where we see him crying. So will we. Christ was mistreated. He was slandered. He was spoken about in harsh terms by other people, spit on by the So will we. And he was beaten, and he was tortured, and he was murdered. And so will be the lives of some Christians. A slave is not greater than their master, Jesus said. But, and there is an important but in this conversation, right? We're not leaving it there. These things do not change our relationship with Christ. They do not change our eternal future. They do not change our salvation. 
We are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ and our salvation is assured forever because God has made promises to us and he has come to dwell in us to prove his intention to fulfill those promises. And he has made us a new creature, Scripture says, so that our old nature has passed away never to return and he has said he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we have a covenant relationship that guarantees eternal outcomes, but does not mean that in the meantime, in the temporal, that we are superheroes or invincible. Those things are not equal. Those things do not come out of the Bible. Christ said we live here for a time in a sinful, fallen world so that we can serve him. And in this world, sin is all around us. I like to say that it's, it's like trying to swim in the unchlorinated end of a pool. Right? If you put a little chlorine in the water, it goes everywhere and you can't avoid it. And in this world we live in, there's sin all over the place and you can't avoid it. In fact, the sin of the world is still indwelling inside you, the Bible says. In your physical bodies, sin still lives in you. So until you shed the physical body that you and I have right now, until we receive our new eternal bodies, we are going to know personally the ravages of sin. We will commit sin from time to time and we will suffer its consequences whether from our own hands or the hands of others who live in their sin. It's going to happen. But the good news is God is using those bad things to accomplish wonderful, amazing, eternal things in our lives if we're open to the lessons. For example, God used terrible things in Job's life to author a book that has given hope to countless millions who faced similar devastation. So one guy had to go through a pretty tough time so that God could give hope to millions. And God used the terrible things of Israel's exile, as we're reading now in the book of Ezekiel, so that he could put an end to soul-crushing idolatry. It's a good outcome. And God used nails and whips to disfigure and kill his own son so that you and I might know God's perfection and his glory and his love. So if God can do those things to his own son, the worst things to his own son, to bring about the best things for you and I, and that's God's plan for every Christian, that we would be like him, then we need to expect God to take bad things and use them to produce good outcomes in our life, and not to take our jingo Christianity, our view of what it means to be a Christian, and trivialize it to the point that we're only interested in what good things come from the relationship. The irony is the good things come out of the bad things. I very rarely find myself changing much for the better when everything is good. It seems as though in our nature, we have to be struggling. Trial has to be a part of the process if God's going to grow us to anything meaningful. So that's one way in which I think Christians repeat this mistake. But there's a second way, and I think an even more damaging way that we can fall into the trap of this excuse. Some might begin to think that the covenant relationship that we have with Christ means we are inherently special people. Not just that we're being protected by God, not just that the world will never harm us, which is a wrong thought in itself, but more than that, that we somehow have something in us now that makes us worthy of what God has done for us. Worthy of the relationship, that we are now inherently lovable, inherently Christ-worthy. You know, it's an easy kind of thought to slip into if you're not careful. You tell yourself that since God died for me to pay for my sins... The rules don't really apply to me anymore. That is, God doesn't really regard my sin anymore. I can do no wrong before Him now. And certainly by your faith in Jesus Christ, He has set aside the penalty 
for your sin. And because of your faith in him, you are credited with Christ's righteousness. And the penalty of sin has fallen on him instead of on you. Yes, but that does not mean that God overlooks our disobedience or that we have a free license to sin without concern before him. Those things don't equal. Such presumption is the pride that goes before the fall in a believer's life. It's the same self-deception that Israel was using to excuse away the prophet's warnings. Like Israel, it stems from this assumption that we are inherently deserving of God's approval. Once again, you need to separate your eternal life in Christ from your temporal life lived for Christ. What I mean by that is this. Living in Christ, as we do by our faith, we are deserving of mercy and forgiveness and protection because the Father loves the Son, and the Son is deserving of those things, and we are in Him. We are assured eternal glory because we are heirs to Christ's promise. So it's His inheritance, it's His glory, it's His kingdom. We are in Him, and we have become a part of His inheritance. He earned it, He deserves it, we're in Him. Those promises are spiritually true for us because of our faith in Christ. And one day they will be our experience in the age to come. But in the meantime, we are expected to obey the Bible's commands for how we live for Christ. So living for Christ means we have to discipline our flesh. It means we have to prevent its sin nature from ruling us. Living for Christ means we have to put away sin to please Him and to become a more effective ambassador in His name. You see the difference? Living in Him, I have the assurance of these things because He deserves them, not me. Living for Him means I am to do my utmost to represent Him by being like Him, by dealing with the part of me that is not like Him. Just like Israel, our covenant relationship didn't tie God's hands from responding to our sin. It binds us to serving the God who has saved us to living according to his commandments. Ironically, one of the strongest warnings in the New Testament against a Christian adopting the same kind of attitude that's prevalent here in Ezekiel 15 uses exactly the same analogy. I don't think that's coincidence. When God spoke to Israel, he used the vine analogy. When Jesus spoke to the church concerning our potential to think ourselves inherently worthy or to think that we can do as we wish apart from him, he went to the vine analogy also in John 15. Listen to what he says. I want you to hear it now as he speaks this parable. Hear it from the same perspective as we just studied with Ezekiel chapter 15. Both in chapter 15, for what it's worth. John 15, 1. I am the true vine... My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, well, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, well, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, well, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Time doesn't permit me to go through this at any length, but let me just summarize, and you'll see the parallels, I think, fairly easily. 
In this parable, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. The Father is the vine dresser. He's the one caring for all the branches. Jesus says we gain our spiritual supply in the vine, in Him, in Christ. That is to say, like He told Israel, we're nothing apart from Him. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, He tells the church, you're the weak things of the world. He chose the weak intentionally so that He could shame those things that think they're strong. So, much like Israel was chosen as a weak nation to shame the wise nations, we've been chosen as weak individuals to shame those who think they can do better than God. But we're nothing apart from Him. We abide in Him. Notice He says, we abide in Him by keeping His commandments. So when He says, abide in me, what does that mean? It means keeping His commandments. And as you abide in Him, He says, loving me is abiding in me. Loving me is keeping my commandments. Just as he says, I abided in the Father and loved Him by obeying His commandments. As we do that, we glorify the Father in bearing fruit. So fruit bearing in this context means doing the works that glorify the Father, which means putting sin aside, which means not doing the things that displease Him. And he says we can do these things when we depend on the supply of the vine. But what about that branch that doesn't? Well, the branch that does not abide in him, that does not obey, is, quote, taken away, he says. It dries up. It's gathered for burning. Now, this is exactly the same picture that Ezekiel uses for the vine in chapter 15 of Ezekiel, that of a vine being burned. So let's make the same um, application. When God spoke to Israel about being burned in the fire, he was not talking about hell. He wasn't talking about damnation. He wasn't talking about the nation being destroyed. He was talking about a severe method of discipline which had as its purpose, as its outcome, a remnant, a good thing coming out of that bad experience on the national level in the case of Israel. But for us on a personal level in the case of this parable, he's saying you don't cease being a Christian because you get burned in the analogy. You're going through a harsh period of discipline. Being cut off from the vine means if you want to demonstrate to me you can do this on your own, you can be inherently worthy, you can disobey all you want and still have all of my protection, let me show you how wrong you are. Let me give you a life lesson in what it means to be in a covenant with a covenant-keeping God and yet unwilling to love me in the way I've asked you to love me. The disobedient Christian risks being set aside from the work of glorifying the Father, of becoming a useless life, a wasted life. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think it's appropriate that the first part of this Ezekiel study, which we're suspending today, which we're putting an end to today, is coming to this reminder. Because I think it neatly sums up the overall teaching perspective that I try to bring to the church in many cases, as you've heard me teach over these years. And to quote Jesus, to whom much is given, much is required. In Christ, we have been given so much, more than you can ever imagine. In fact, when you see the glory of Christ appearing in the day that is appointed, and when we see the heavenly realm, and when we enter into that kingdom in the age to come, we are going to be stunned by all that the Lord has prepared for us. You can't even imagine it, Paul says in his letters. We're going to be overwhelmed by the evidence of his love for us as we reach those points. Only then are you and I going to be able to appreciate all that has been given to us. For no reason of our own, but merely for the fact that he loved us. And in that moment, we're also going to appreciate why the Lord said he had right to expect so much in response. It's going to make sense to us then that all of this was given to us and all you asked of me was a few decades of life lived by controlling my sin nature and 
serving you instead of serving myself? That's all you asked of me, considering all you had prepared for me? I, I want to be ready for that moment with you. I, I want us all to be able to say we held nothing back from Christ because He gave us everything. We want to abide in Him. We want to respond to that kind of love in the right way. We want to keep His commandments, and we don't want to make excuses for our sin. Let's all bear fruit in that way. And let's enjoy what the Lord has for us when we get there together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some days our message from Scripture is more sobering than others. Father, I do pray that the message today, though sobering in in ways, would encourage our hearts as well. In the right moments of our days and our life when we're struggling and when we're not looking past ourselves at what you've given us and not concerning ourselves with abiding in you. Father, I pray that we would have our mind turned back to the the lesson and what we learned from what you said to Israel and what you said through Ezekiel. That, Father, you've asked us to abide in you because we are weak apart from you. You've asked us to obey you so that we might show our love and in all these things that we might bear fruit to your glory. These are reasonable things, Father. These are reasonable things considering, considering what you've done for us. As Paul wrote, these are the reasonable forms of service that you would expect of someone who has been saved by your death on a cross, who has been made righteous by someone else's perfect life, Father, by Christ's life. I pray, Father, you would, you would encourage our hearts in that way to think about the big picture, to move our eyes up from the day to day and to keep them pointed at eternity. And to concern ourselves, Father, with your pleasure in us and not our pleasure in you. Though we have much about you that pleases us, Father, much that is rich and encouraging to us as we consider you and all you've done for us. But nonetheless, Father, we get mired in our own concerns and we forget, Father, that you've asked you've asked us to love you in a certain way. And we pray we'll do that better than we've done it in the past. Father, I pray for Oak Hill Bible Church once more that this church would always have their eyes on eternity and always have their concern in their heart for how they obey what they know is true from the Scriptures, and that you would guide them and guard them, protect them as only you can, and that you would watch over them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.